Love the nouns, love the pronouns, impersonal and personal. Love the words from ELFM. One hundred and fifty words as I wait for a tree to grow back. A comedy about a neighbourly dispute over a tree in twelve poems by Pamela Crow. One hundred and fifty words as I wait for a tree to grow back. Part one or anger. Man at the back has cut down his tree, and now we are in a terrible romance, where each morning our eyes catch across the fence before quickly turning away to focus on our tasks. Man at the back is not tall enough for me, and fortunately married to his clever musician wife. Well done, man. And probably would not want me with three kids and an anger problem. Man at the back may just be stupid enough, however, to like the idea of me, who probably looks quite dazzling and blurred from over there, as anger doesn't travel well through windows and the kids are out of view. Man at the back comes round to talk about the fence that has blown over many times recently since cutting down his tree, and which he can't fix, him not being handy. Man is stupid and looks intently at me. One hundred and fifty words as I wait for a tree to grow back. Part two or patience. Woman at the back, one along, has cut down her tree, and now the infirm fence is even more fucked. What is it with everyone undermining my fence, which was happily doing its job until recently? Woman at the back tells me we should all get together and work out a plan to sort out the fence. But I can't help feeling this is something else coming from people who destroy perfectly good trees. Woman at the back talks too much, and it is hard to end the conversation about my fence. I would rather have a fence than have a talk, and I am grieving the fence that meant I didn't have to. Woman at the back has been speaking to man at the back and his wife, and they are all in agreement. I find the number for Richard, who maintains boundaries, and though it is Saturday, I call him. One hundred and fifty words as I wait for a tree to grow back, part three, or K.
courage. Woman at the back needs to pull down her blind and seriously rethink where she sits getting dressed, as each morning I see her from afar with hairdryer blasting sat totally fucking clueless in her bra. Woman at the back is too tall and too fierce for me and fortunately married to that rock climber chap, git, and probably would not want me with short legs and small talk anxiety. Woman at the back might just be interested enough, however, to like the idea of me, who probably looks quite forceful and decisive from over there, since self-doubt doesn't travel well through windows, and my wife is out of view. Woman at the back suggests I try and fix the fence that has blown over many times recently, since storms blew down the tree, and which her man can't fix. So I go round to see. Woman is not interested, and stares angrily at me. One hundred and fifty words as I wait for a tree to grow back. A comedy about a neighbourly dispute over a tree in twelve poems by Pamela Crow. Looking from a window above, it's like a story of love. Can you hear me? Came back only yesterday. One hundred and fifty words as I wait for a tree to grow back. Part four, or mercy. Man at the back has stopped catching my eye, and now I'm in a terrible despair, where each morning I stand pressed up at the glass, trying hard to make him swivel in his ergonomic chair. Man at the back keeps his head fixed at the screen and won't so much look sideways to acknowledge me. Well done, man and probably has decided I'm not dazzling after all, or I'm too old or too angry or too ugly or too tall. Man at the back might just like the sight of me, however, doing stretches, multitasking, hanging laundry, in all weather, as I limber up and wobble, trying to proprioceptive this world, wondering who can want this tyrant, come heretic, come sad girl. Man at the back comes down one day, to monitor the fence, which has withstood a pandemic and my year as malcontent, as my eye contact holds payload for the trees ripped from my land. I say to him, plant saplings now. He takes one from my hand.
150 words as I wait for a tree to grow back, part 5, or Vigilance. Man at the back has his light on all night and I hazard he's ill or there's something afoot, like marital wobbles or leg cramp or heartburn or the mouth-watering plot of a potboiler book. Man at the back doesn't know I'm awake and demolishing rom-coms to kill time till dawn as the wind gathers force pulling branches and tiles off, I watch my blithe saplings outfence the storm. Man at the back disappears from his study and shapeshifts downstairs with unnatural speed. I see him prowl cupboards and drawers in the fridge light and spy him surveilling a large plate of cheese. Man at the back is my unwitting sidekick to solitude grief and a flickering screen. He briefly looks up as I bring down the curtain. I catch my reflection and wish him safe dreams. words as I wait for a tree to grow back. Part 6 or Devotion Man at the back back has cut down his trees. Man at the back back isn't man at the back who is really more side man than back 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 man. Man at the back back has cut down his trees and now I'm completely incensed at the landscaped view into backyards and bins and the loss of my beautiful tall leafy fence. Man at the back back is a dentist by trade and obsessed with the wall that encloses his patch. With mug in hand daily, he audits the gritstone for mossy deposits, occlusions and plaque. Man at the back back thinks he's Lancelot Brown with a talent for pastoral sublimity but his dentistry skill makes no sylvan adil or commutes to arboreal capability. Man at the back back suggested I pay for one half of the damage, a new fence, that replaced the trees. But I've planted a field rose and Tibetan cherry and settled the balance with this sweet poetry.
150 words as I wait for a tree to grow back, a comedy about a neighbourly dispute over a tree in 12 poems by Pamela Crowe. In a fleeting moment of a restless day Driven to distraction I was captured by the game I have often wondered why I ever wanted to Leave these scattered hours behind me And speed myself to you 150 words as I wait for a tree to grow back Part 7 or Willpower Man at the back has a formidable foe with fluorescent powers for sowing good deeds. He zapped me the saplings when the fence amdram began. He's called Will, and I know him from uni at Leeds. Man at the back might pick up a few tips from Will's marvelesque power for botanical feats. Though we rarely cross paths, he's my own Clara Prest, re-establishing roots felled by plant man's mischief. Man at the back likes to step out in lycra, as does Will, a keen cyclist and climber of crags. I guess stretchy fabric aids crusader antics, such as cycling and climbing, and the gifting of plants. Man at the back and my friend could join forces as a dynamic green duo saving trees from the cleave. Will could explain that the first rule of boundaries is that with great power comes great responsibility. I choose never to forget I want our lips to kiss And our limbs to entwine Let our bodies be twisted But never our mind 150 words as I wait for a tree to grow back. Part 8 or manoeuvres. Man at the back has a rotary line and now I am blessed with astonishing views into branches of socks and an arbour of bras that he's growing in lieu of the tree he removed. Man at the back's twirly tree has attracted a flock of white pegs that take perch and trapeze. When not pinning pants to its wiry phalanxes, they perform acrobatics and twitch in the breeze. Man at the back's probably spotted the knickers that extend the full length of my pink washing line. I hung them out brashly this morning at sunrise before running inside as he lifted the blind. Man at the back might surmise I am wanton to squarely parade my small things brazenly, but it's him who's created this bawdy hiatus. That'll teach him to fuck with my tree. Is this love is this love is this love is this love set to work idle hands shake these thoughts had I planned them they never will be decently as viciously as these One hundred and fifty words as I wait for a tree to grow back. Part nine or 
severance. Man at the back has his house up for sale, so I reckon that's it, and they'll soon be long gone. On Sunday they hosted an open house viewing, and I watched from above as guests crisscrossed the lawn. Man at the back was industrious the next day, tugging climbers from trellis and brambles from beds. I flippantly shouted he'd sprouted green fingers and offered my pruners for trimming the hedge. Man at the back stopped his lopping and started, said they'd taken an offer to exchange rapidly. I nodded and murmured the market was buoyant and joked he'd up sticks and make like a tree. Man at the back laughed and I biffed the tree stump in slapstick as if showing the force of my fresh clemency. We stared as a cherry red sap formed on my wrist. He quickly applied pressure to help stem the bleed. In a fleeting moment Of a restless day Driven to distraction I was captured by the game I have often wondered Why I ever wanted to Leave these scattered hours behind me And speed myself to you One hundred and fifty words as I wait for a tree to grow back. A comedy about a neighbourly dispute over a tree in twelve poems by Pamela Crow. Looking from a window above, it's like a story of love. Can you hear me? Came back only yesterday. I'm moving farther away. Won't you near me? All I needed was the love you gave. All I needed for another day. And all I One hundred and fifty words as I wait for a tree to grow back. Part ten, or deliverance. Man at the back was away all last week when I spotted a man smash the patio door. I leapt on the floor of my bedroom and panicked before crawling commando to dial nine nine nine. Man at the back's kitchen door suddenly opened. I froze before gingerly stealing a look at the sight of three men loading nothing they owned from the back of his house into a grey pickup truck. Man at the back's study window naively refracted the peace of an innocent day. The sun caught the glass and I counted the blinks, three fast, then three slow, then three fast, a mayday. Man at the back's house alarm started ringing and I saw the intruders run out and abscond. The police turned up later and took a full statement. I told them the view was a good one. Sometimes when I think of her name, when it's only a game, and I need you, listen to the words that you say, it's getting harder to stay. 
150 words as I wait for a tree to grow back, part 11, or Sanctuary. Cat at the back is a regular guest. He sleeps under cars in the kids' old playhouse and limps out each morning for a feed and a song. He's unsure, but he's learning to trust us. Cat at the back has begun to come in to the kitchen some mornings to finish the bowls. Bridget and Min Min, my girls, quietly sit and watch as he, terrified, laps up their spoils. Cat at the back has no chip and the vet says he's feral and likely will always be wild. My son sometimes leans in and rubs his sweet head as he bolts tenderness and cat treats from a child. Cat at the back's eyes lit up when I swept home at midnight last night in a taxi from Leeds. He was under a camper van parked at the neighbours. He's still looking for somewhere to call sanctuary. One hundred and fifty words as I wait for a tree to grow back. Part twelve or home. Man at the back has abandoned his house move and decided to stay put and convert the roof. He came round to tell me the sale had aborted. I thought, hmm, things you touch seem to fall through. Man at the back stayed a while and we chatted about parks and green spaces he cycled in Leeds. He laughed that my saplings were rapidly growing and the view of his study would soon give way to trees. Man at the back had begun to depart when he clocked books and boxes stacked high in the hall. I told him a job had come up and I'd settled on returning to London while the kids were still small. Man at the back raised his eyebrows and drew breath, said he'd sure miss our chats and my pistols at dawn. I gave him a book about bell towers and courage. In the morning, the removal man carried us home. One hundred and fifty words as I wait for a tree to grow back is written and performed by Pamela Crow. The role of Man at the Back in Part Three is performed by Peter Spafford. The first four poems in the sequence are printed in the Bell Tower, a book of poetry by Pamela Crow, and published with the Emma Press. It's available from their website www.theemmapress.com and all good bookshops. So I'm in Studio One talking to Pamela Crow, the poet who has brought us. And thanks for that, Pamela, for, for writing on air in the theme of home. 150 words as I wait for a tree to go back, grow back. So um, tell us a bit about the this, this sequence of poems and how it came to be. Absolutely. Uh, well, uh, thank you first for having me. So the poems completely grew from um, real things I was observing from my bedroom window in Leeds. So there's a strong kind of basis of truth and a kind of semi-autobiographical element to them. I was annoyed that my 
uh, neighbour cut down his tree and I could suddenly see into his home office, his study on the first floor of his uh, house. And I was furious. I was furious, Peter, because I had hitherto, up to that point, uh, sat completely surrounded by trees each morning, blow-drying my hair in whatever I wanted or not, um, feeling um, con content and surrounded and safe. And then he chopped down this tree and suddenly we could see each other each morning. Uh, and I uh, spent a few days thinking that I wasn't going to move and he'd cut down the tree so he could, you know, look at whatever he could now see. And then it just got, it got ridiculous. So I kind of shuffled along the windowsill and started to dry my hair in another, in another spot. So that's what gets kind of explored in um, part three of the 12-part se sequence. Um, I try to imagine what he might have been thinking. Um, and then kind of after that, really, it became, I guess, I think the word is allegorical. So it's become this kind of bigger piece of work, which is trying to explore a lot of themes which really mean a great deal to me in terms of personal boundaries, um, issues that women experience around trespass and around kind of, um, you know, more serious issues around um, the body and privacy and, and, and how, um, how we try to kind of, I guess, police the borders of our private life. And, and then alongside that, and it's relevant to, you know, being here and recording the work, the ways, the, the parts of us that kind of like an audience and want to kind of share what we do as well. So it's about, I guess, that very deep personal negotiation of personal space alongside public space and, um, and how we, we share that really with our families, but also kind of strangers, I guess, that are our land kind of borders. And you use a word which I didn't know, proprioceptive, in yes. the poem, one of the poems. Tell us, tell us about that word. Proprioceptive is a word that I think um, is not only kind of beautiful and melodic to hear, but also um, on a personal level um, represents a, yeah, kind of really meaningful thing for me. I had a period of paralysis and neuro rehabilitation, um, which I explore in a, another work that I'm putting out and writing on our um, rectal prolapse. And um, as I'm kind of spending time in 2010 in an acute neuro ward and then a um, rehabilitation ward at Chapel Allerton Hospital to learn to walk again, to kind of um, try and try and learn how to stand up, move, smile, um, move my arms and legs, move anything. And I'm staring at parts of my body, willing them to move as if I could just do it with force alone. I hear this word proprioceptive and it's used by the physio team who are uh, supporting me. And it means to have, a, I guess, a perception of your place in the world around you. So it's the feedback you get um, as a human in your body or as any kind of creature, I guess, in terms of um, neurally, um, where, where you are in the world, your place in the world. And, yeah, um, so uh, proprioception, yeah, it's kind of really important for this kind of personal, deeply personal sense of feedback and belonging.
Was a Man by Neil Rathmull. There was a man who, as he walked through the cemetery, always recited the De Profundis for the dead. Once he was running away through the cemetery with his enemies after him, but the buried, each one armed with the tool proper to his craft, quickly rose and defended the fleeing man with might and main. His pursuers, terrified, retreated in haste. I was busy exploring the old chapel and had lost track of time. I hadn't been in the parish long. One of the parishioners had said something about it, an old chapel that had been locked up for years. The path was overgrown with brambles, gravestones tumbling down beside it, bindweed everywhere with its big white flowers, which always remind me of old paintings of angels with trumpets. Not surprisingly, there were old tales told about it, strange encounters on a full moon, that kind of thing. I managed with some difficulty to get hold of a key, a big, heavy iron one. To my surprise, it turned easily in the lock. I opened the door and went in. Instead of dust and cobwebs inside, I found rows of plain wooden pews on a stone floor, worn with time but quite clean, facing a pulpit with a carved edge to the lectern and steps that wound round it. Wanting a closer look at the carving on the pulpit, I was about to climb the steps when something made me look round. I tripped and nearly fell when I saw an old man standing inside the door. Sorry if I scared you. It was just an old man, nothing to be scared of, though the stories I had been told made my heart miss a beat. I said... You took me by surprise. I didn't hear you come in. The old man turned to look back down the nave. I saw the door was open. It's usually kept locked. The key was in my hand. I held it up and smiled, 
feeling calmer now. I said, I got it from the bishop. I'm the new deacon. I was here a few weeks ago, but I couldn't get in. There was a man once had the key, given to him by vicar years ago. Now, here it is again. He was staring at the key, almost as if he couldn't take his eyes off it. I looked at it myself. Was it lost, I said. Lost? He fell silent for a moment, staring at the key that rested now on my open hand. At last, he turned and looked at me. Do you want to know? I said I did. Sit down, and I'll tell thee what happened. He took my arm and led me to a pew. As a woman on her own, perhaps I should have been more wary, but there was something about him that made me trust him. And anyway, I wanted to hear what he had to say. They call them rough sleepers now. In them days they were tramps. You never saw them begging. No, they took care of themselves. They knew which houses to go to. Big houses where a cook would give them a piece of pie or a bowl of broth. Farmhouses where a farmer's wife would give them one of her husband's old suits instead of chucking it out or using it to dress up a scarecrow. When it was too cold to sleep outside... They sheltered in barns. They were solitary creatures. Sociable for an hour, then off on road again. He paused long enough to give a regretful sigh. They've all gone now. Between one year and next, they'd find big house had changed hands and farmhouse with a weekend cottage. Nobody came to the door when they knocked. Or if they did, it were only to send them away with a flea in their ear. Charity was hard to come by. He leaned towards me again and spoke with a kind of quiet intensity that I found strangely compelling. Faith, hope and charity. Take away charity and what's left. A stool with two legs. No good for sitting on. You just have to keep walking. He broke off. There was a smile playing around his mouth. One of those smiles that remind you of a flame running over the embers of a dying fire. He took a deep breath and went on with his story. So here he is, in a place where he used to feel welcome, but now folk turn their backs on him or give him black looks. For some reason he decides to stay. Don't ask me why. Happened he were tired. Or just getting old. It'll be the same wherever I go, he thinks. So I might as well stay here and save me legs. After all, he knows place better than most people who live here. He's been coming here on and off for 50 years. There's not many of them have known it that long. Many a time he's slept at graveyard, making his bed up against chapel wall. So he puts his bundle down and makes himself at home. Happen he thinks he might stay for a day or two. He can always find something to eat. An apple from somebody's garden, a few plums, handful of peas. He makes a fire to keep warm, helps himself to a chicken and roasts it on fire. A week goes by, two weeks, a month. He's never stayed in one place as long as this before. Only thing he misses is conversations he used to have with a friendly cook in the backyard 
or a farmer's wife outside kitchen door. So what does he do? Have a guess. I gave in, and with a chuckle he told me. He talks to neighbours. George Ernest Whitwell, 1782-1841. Arnold Megginson, 1798-1840. Elsie Byron, 1823-1894. Lucy Wilkes, 1847-1856. He makes friends with them. Bids them good day in the morning. Says good night before he makes his bed. Morning, George. Morning, Mrs Byram. How are you today? Good night, Mr Megginson. Sleep tight, Lucy. Neighbours, you see. He's never had neighbours before. Not since he were a boy, and that were too long ago to remember. He talks to them every day as if they were having a chat outside back door. Afternoon, George. Nice weather for time of year. Now then, Lucy, what have you been up to? It gets on with all of them, but he has a soft spot for little un. He broke off again, and in the silence I saw that elusive smile light up his face. That's how Parson came to find him. He was a young chap, new to the job, like you, just feeling his way, getting to know parish. He'd gone out for a walk one evening and found himself coming down lane past Old Chapel. Next thing, he heard someone talking on the other side of Edge. Hello, Mrs Byram. Lovely evening. Now, it so happened that one of the women who dipped flowers in church were called Byram. So when he hears name, he pulls up short. <laughs> What's she doing here? He takes a step closer to Edge and tries to look through. But it's all overgrown and he can't see. He hears voice again. Evening, Mr Megginson. There were Megginsons at village too. And Parson wonders which one of them it is on the other side of Edge with Mrs Byram. Curiosity gets better of him. He leans out the gate and peeps round. What does he see? Not Mrs Byram. Not Mr Megginson. Just an old tramping graveyard talking to himself. Well, he's not doing any harm. So he leaves him be and goes back to Parsonage. Next time he's passing... He hears a noise on the other side of the edge. He looks out the gate and he sees Tramp cutting grass with a sickle. He thinks he'd better investigate now so he tries to open the gate but it's stuck. Tramp's seen him now and he's stopped what he's doing. Tramp's looking at Vicar and Vicar's looking at Tramp. Inge's rusty, he says. All it needs is a drop of oil. I'll do it when I've finished cutting grass. Well... Parson couldn't help but smile. I had to smile too, thinking how easily the tramp would have won me over if it had been me. Tramp were doing no harm, so Parson turns a blind eye and leaves him to it. Every time he went back, he thought tramp would be gone, but he was still there. He finished cutting grass, he oiled gate, he tidied up an old stone footpath between graves. Parson found him on his knees one day, trimming grass with a pair of garden shears, taking as much care at graveyard as parishioners took of the front lawns. More than some of them. I'm sure the parson saw him as one of his parishioners too. No different from anyone else. I hope I would have done the same. Sorry. Please, go on. One day, parson asked him how he'd managed in churchyard in winter. Well, 
Tramp took that as a polite way of telling him it were time he went. Parson wants rid of me, he said, when he walked round graves that night. He's been dropping hints. Neighbours told him to take no notice. Stay where you are, they told him. We like having you here. Toad Place has never looked better. He promised to stay until he finished pruning edge, which were what he were doing next day when an angry-looking chap comes through gate. Where did you get those shears? They're mine. It wasn't first time in his life Tramp had been caught red-handed, but he were always ready with an answer. He tells chap he's doing odd jobs for Vicar. Are you indeed? We'll soon see about that. I pictured the scene and wondered why our sympathies are always with the culprit, as if the victim were somehow mean-spirited in wanting his property back. Parson comes back later with another pair of shears. You should have asked me, he says. If there's anything else you need, just let me know. He takes shears and sickle so he can return them to the rightful owner. Tramp thinks he must have been wrong about Parson dropping hints. Neighbours are right pleased when he tells him he's changed his mind about leaving. How sad, I thought, that the old man's neighbours should be in the graveyard, not in the village where they should have been. But days are getting shorter, and nights are getting colder. Time was when he would have slept in a barn. What does he do? Can he guess? I couldn't. He uses prunings from edge to make a shelter. He weaves them together, like shepherds do, to make a sheepfold, and leans it against chapel wall. Erdles, they call them. It takes him best part of a week, and when it's done, he shows it off at neighbours. What do you think of that, he says. I couldn't be any warmer at night if I were down there with you. He fell silent, and I thought his story might be over. I made as if to stand up, but he put out his hand, and I dropped back onto the pew, happy to know there was more to come. Parson had done his best to smooth things over, but folk were still grumbling. Some of them came down lane to see for themselves. Now that Tramp had pruned edge, they could see what were on to the side. This saw his shelter against chapel wall, and they said it were an eyesore. They told Parson it would have to go. What if more turned up like him? One were bad enough. They had visions of down and outs, descending on village like crows on a new-mown field, lighting fires, drinking, stealing. Parson had no choice. He told the old man to get rid of his shelter. The parson, of whom I had been forming such a good impression, suddenly fell in my estimation. He told him to sleep in chapel instead. The parson's reputation was restored. Parson gave him key to chapel and told him to get rid of his shelter. Told man did as he were told, but it hurt his pride. That shelter were like a work of art to him. He'd made it with his own hands and it grieved him to have to take it to bits. He said to neighbours he were going to sleep in chapel that night and leave in morning. It were time to move on, he said. But neighbours wanted him to stay. Sleep on it, they said. You might feel different in morning. Well, he spent night in chapel, and he had a good night's sleep. And when he opened the door, in morning and saw it were pouring down, he decided to stay after all. When rain stopped, he went out to tell the neighbours he'd changed his mind. After all, he said, there's not much difference between a chapel and a barn. 
Neighbours were that pleased, they all joined hands and danced around in a ring. That's what they were doing when Church Warden happened to go past and saw what looked like Tramp dancing a jig in the middle of the graveyard. He went straight round to Parson, told him what he'd seen. Drunk in the middle of the morning, singing and dancing, making an exhibition of himself. Desecrated graveyard, literally dancing on people's graves. Then he went home and told everyone else. Parson did his best to keep the peace. He spoke up for old man and asked parishioners to be charitable. What harm was he doing? Parishioners were split. Some said get rid of him. Others said leave him be. Some said give him five pound and send him on his way. Some said it were up to Parson to decide. Others said they'd be doing Parson a favour by taking decision out of his hands. Parson meant well, they said. It were just that he'd gone about it wrong way. Sometimes you have to be cruel to be kind. Charity begins at home. How I hate that saying. Charity begins at home. Sheer hypocrisy. That's how they got the idea of replacing Parsons' charity with charity of a different kind. After all, they were charities whose job it was to look after homeless people. There was no need to turn their chapel into a doss house if one of them could find somewhere for him to stay. Someone's wife took it upon herself to make inquiries. Trouble was, none at charities she spoke to seemed to want to help. They all had their hands full with rough sleepers in city streets. A tramp in a village graveyard was not a priority. So when they'd been through all charities they could think of and got nowhere, they decided to take matters into their own hands. If charity wouldn't come to tramp, they would have to take tramp to charity. I couldn't hide my incredulity. Surely they didn't mean to take him out of the chapel and put him on the streets. Getting him there was the only problem. And that was solved when someone offered use of a horse box. I was so outraged by this that all I could do was gasp. The idea of putting the old man in a horse box so they could take him away and leave him on the streets left me speechless. It were all planned out. Someone to drive van, someone to keep a lookout, three or four strong men to bundle tramp into van. By chance, the day they chose to do it was November 4th, night before bonfire night. Round here they call it mischief night, when lads go around wrecking each other's bonfires and setting off fireworks. For the last few weeks they've been hearing the parents grumbling about old man in chapel. Some of them peeped through edge and seen pile of sticks that used to be his shelter. Instead of wrecking each other's bonfires, they decided to rack his. My indignation was growing by the minute, not with the children, but with their parents, whose example they were following. But the old man seemed unconcerned. That little blue flame of a smile was still playing on his lips. Lads got there before men. It wasn't till they were going down lane it dark that some of them got wind up about going into a graveyard at night. Closer they got, more scared they were. By the time they got to the gate, 
Most of them were wishing they'd never come. Tramp heard them whispering on the other side of Edge. He soon guessed what they were up to, and he went and hid behind one at gravestones. He hears them sneaking. Somewhere in distance, a rocket goes up. Lads stop to look at it. And that's when he jumps out with his arms in there going, Ooh! Ooh! You can imagine the effect that had on them. They turned tail and ran back out at gate and up lane like frightened rabbits. Told man could hardly stand up for laughing. He went all round graveyard telling neighbours what they'd missed. I laughed too and clapped my hands. He caught my hands and pressed them down. I became silent and attentive again. If he hadn't been laughing so much, he might have hurt men coming down lane with horse box. Boys had met him further up and told them what had happened. Or rather, they told them their version. Some of bigger boys had realised by now how old man had tricked them, so they twisted things round to put themselves in a good light. They hadn't been doing any harm, they said. Tramp had frightened them. They thought it would hurt them. That's why little ones were still crying. No one said out about thinking they'd seen a ghost. Men couldn't have been more pleased. Parson couldn't object now. Tramp had gone too far and it were time to do something about it. They told lads to go home and went on down lane. When Tramp heard footsteps, he thought it were lads coming back. And he hid behind a gravestone again. But when he peeped out and saw it were grown men walking through gates, he thought his luck had run out. He sees them walk up path, looking from side to side, and keeps himself out of sight. When they reach chapel door, they stand in a huddle, whispering to each other, until one of them opens door and they all go inside. Now's his chance to get away. Told man's halfway to gate when he has a better idea. He runs back to chapel, takes key out of his pocket, closes door and locks it. I felt like cheering, but I managed to control my feelings. Tramp puts his ear to door, but door's inches thick and he can't hear a thing. He's still holding on to the doorknob when he feels someone trying to turn it on the other side. They start banging on the door. Time to go. He gets to the gate again when he sees boys outside in the lane and comes to a stop. turned to look at me, his face wrinkled with amusement. Did you think boys had gone home like they'd been told? You don't know boys if you did. They've come to watch, and they're waiting outside gate. They've seen Tramp now. He can't hide. Men are locked inside chapel, shouting and banging up door. What's he to do? Can you guess? I didn't even try. All I wanted was to find out how the story ended. He takes key out of his pocket and holds it up as if he's daring them to come and take it off him. Lads take a step towards him, all bunched together, holding on to each other. He waves key at them. Come on, he says, taking a step back. Who wants it? Lads at back pushed others forward. 
The old man's back into Watts Chapel door. Lads are coming after him, one step at a time. When they're all through gate and he can see his way clear to get past them, he throws key up into air. There's a rush forward. Tall man makes a dash for gate, but one of the lads catches key before it falls. A chair goes up. Old man looks round, catches his foot on the edge of a gravestone and trips. Lads are opening chapel door now. Tramp's struggling to get to his feet. Men are coming out at chapel. Boys are shouting. First man out grabs hold of him. Tramp hangs onto a gravestone. Boys are crowding round. Tramp can't hold on much longer. I wanted him to escape, but how could he? Next thing he knows, he's being pulled in two directions. Man who caught him's pulling on one arm and somebody else is pulling on t'other. Everyone's wondering who it is and where he's come from. By the look of his shabby clothes and mucky hair, it's another down and out. They'd always said it wouldn't be long before more of them came to join him and here they are. Rough sleepers, you might say. Told man's got away now. He knows who they are. He's running about, shaking their hands. Mr Megginson, Mrs Byram, Lucy. Men are outnumbered. There's nought they can do now. There's bony hands grabbing hold of them, picking them up. Lads are huddled together, holding on to each other, too scared to move. One of the lad makes a run for the gate. Others run after him. They don't look back. So they don't see neighbours chucking men over edge. And they don't see old man dancing with little girl. Neighbours, you see. I looked at him, at the little smile hovering on his lips. Home. He leant across and put his hand on my arm. Home, at last. With which words he took the key from my hand, stood up and walked back to the chapel door. I followed him. He held the door open for me. I walked through. He closed the door behind me. I saw him put the key in the lock and turn it. Then he looked back at me. And with that same little smile on his lips, he threw the key high into the air, so high that I lost sight of it. And when I looked down, the old man had vanished too. The Deacon was read by Pam Hilton. The Old Man by Ken Taylor. Introduction was read by Mo Willis. Rough Sleepers was directed by Mo Willis. Mm-hmm.